And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, Monday of a brand new week in November and, of course, first full week of November. And, of course, uh, as we saw last week, markets had a really sharp rally. And this was after the Fed kind of basically gave a more dovish outlook uh, to the economy than on Friday, a much weaker than expected employment report. And that really started to uh, pull yields down, gave stocks a big boost. And, again, the dollar also weakened in this. And there's been a a much more highly correlated set of assets in the market. Stocks, bonds, the dollar, uh, and the inverse of the dollar have been very closely correlated over the last couple of years. So kind of so goes those assets that have all been running together, which has made it difficult for investors to find a safe place to hide because everything's moving in the same direction at the same time. So, um, but nonetheless, the employment report on Friday, interesting because there's been a very long streak of employment reports beating estimates. Like every month that comes out, and we went for like 17 months straight with the number actually beating the estimates. The, the economists were just wrong month after month after month after month. Um, well, yesterday we did not be, or sorry, on Friday, the employment report not only did not beat estimates, but actually came in much weaker than estimates. And that's a, that's a much different tone. 150,000 jobs created, much weaker than expected, of course. Um, but this is something we've kind of been expecting for a while. It's just been taking a while to show up. Now, importantly, we've had the longest streak of data points. And again, so two things that have been coming out. Um, the, first of all, the number that's been beating estimates. We had a very, very long streak of the actual employment report beating estimates. We've also had an exceptionally long streak, the biggest on record, by the way, of seasonal adjustments that have been adding to the employment report. And that ended this last Friday. So again, it's just been a very interesting set. The data's been coming in a lot stronger than expected. We've also had a lot of seasonal adjustments providing to that uh, those beats. And so the question is, is really has the employment been that strong? Or is this something that in the future we're going to come back and re-revise those seasonal adjustments and find out that employment's actually been a lot weaker? But nonetheless, we'll find that out later. But this is why, you know, there's always never a recession in sight until there is. And this is why, you know, when you take a look at the employment data, the GDP report, whatever it is, it says, oh, GDP is very strong. It's always strong. We're always running at about 2% economic growth just before we find out we're in a recession a year later. So, because again, we always look back when the actual dating occurs. By the time the National Bureau of Economic Research dates the recession, we always have to go back about 12 months, six, nine, 12 months, say, oh yeah, it started then because now we've revised the data and that's where we can see that it started. So again, be careful with the data just because it says one thing or the other, because again, we won't know what that data means until six to nine months from now. Now, importantly, that brings up another point, the lag effect that we've been talking about for quite some time. The lag effect takes roughly about six quarters, so six to nine quarters, somewhere around there. That's about how long it takes before that's reflected into the economic reports. We are just now reaching from the first rate hike. We are now just reaching that point of that kind of six to nine quarter delay. So again, we're so probably sometime first quarter, second quarter of next year, that lag effect is going to start catching up. That's something also 
that the Federal Reserve has been talking about, really at the last couple of meetings, they have mentioned repeatedly the lag effect. They, they are aware this lag effect takes time. They're aware that all these rate hikes that they put into the system is going to take time for them to show up. And again, we're starting to see that um, in some of the data. We're starting to see that potentially in some of the consumer spending. And we're going to get a lot more to look at here this month. Obviously, Black Friday right around the corner. That's coming up on, on Thanksgiving, which not just a couple of weeks away. It's, a, it's almost turkey time. So, you know, we'll see what the holiday shopping season kind of kicks off, even though Black Friday started like two weeks ago. Um, but Black Friday, I mean, I'm already seeing Target has Black Friday specials going on. You know, sign up now and get Black Friday. Black Friday is the day after Thanksgiving, right? We're not there yet, but we're already having these sales going on. But nonetheless, uh, we're going to get a look at retail sales, kind of really what's happening. You know, is the consumer hanging in there? Are they still spending money? Then, of course, we've got Christmas, New Year's, all that coming up, right? So uh, over the next couple of months, we're really going to get a good look at just how strong that retail spending is and just how strong the consumer is. So let's talk a little bit about the market rally on Friday. Here's what you need to know before the bell. Um, market rallied very nicely last week. S&P was up about 6% last week. Now remember, just the week before, we're all in a panic because of this decline in the market. And we were talking about, hey, be careful here. Markets are deeply oversold. Um, we're going to get a rally. If that triggers a buy signal, that's good. And again, in just last week's trading session, five trading sessions in a row, markets rallied 6%, completely reversing that break of the 200-day moving average, took out the 20 and the 50-day moving average. So all those resistance levels we were worried about going up, market just ran right through there uh, you know, with not much effort. Um, this also went right across to other asset classes. We'll get to in just a second here. But look, markets are now back to overbought here on a short-term basis. So expect a little bit of a consolidation here. Here's what's going to be important. Um, we may not hold this 50-day moving average, but if we can hold the 20-day uh, moving average and not retest the 200-day moving average, that would actually be fairly bullish. But uh, again, a bit of a pullback here won't be surprising. We're also uh, breaking out, and this was something we talked about last week, is that we have this kind of downtrend channel that the market was building and market actually broke out of that on Friday as well. So again, lots of kind of good bullish backdrop here uh, to, to stocks here short term. Markets look to be pointing up a little bit this morning. We might get a little bit of follow through here. But again, you know, overall, we just triggered that buy signal from a fairly low level. So a little bit of consolidation here, not surprising. We kind of hold around this 4,200-ish level. And then the market potentially can make another move higher heading in towards the year end. We'll see. Bonds, of course, is the one thing that everybody's been kind of focused on as of late. Obviously, bonds have had a very tough year this year. Um, markets were making a nice rounded top in the markets again. Yields moved very quickly last week on that employment report. Came down, retested support at the 50-day moving average. Now, again, this is yields, so it's the inverse of bond prices. Yields came down, triggered that sell signal. So again, that suggests that we're going to get lower yields, but again, probably not right away. So kind of expect a rally in yields back up to about 4.7, 4.8%. Certainly won't be surprising. If the markets can do that, not go above 4.8, and then come down and then take out these lows that we've been setting here over the last kind of couple of months. So again, a bit of a rally here. 
markets come down, take out this neckline. That's a very nice head and shoulders top for yields, suggesting that yields are going to go lower. Uh, again, yields right now, short-term oversold. So again, that's what I'm saying. Kind of expect a bounce in yields. Might even see some of that today. So bond prices come back a little bit, give you another shot to maybe add a little bit of bond exposure to your portfolio. But if we start seeing much weaker economic data as we get into the first year, then you would expect to see potentially lower yields here, particularly as inflation starts to come under pressure. But one thing we'll talk about this morning is, is that lower yields are actually a problem for the Fed. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning when we come back from the break. We've got a couple of things to get into. The death of fire, as well as uh, what these lower yields potentially and why they are potentially a problem for the Fed. So again, lots of stuff to get into this morning. Stick around. More of the Real Investment Show coming up right after the break. Get to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We have our latest newsletter is out, talking about the potential for this rally that we've got in the stock market, all the details behind that. Also, our latest blog post out on Friday, talking about those retail sales employment numbers, not really as strong as a lot of people expect. So again, uh, that's on the website now. All there for you. It's free. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. As I said before the uh, the break, you know, um, bonds got a very had a very big rally last week, along with stocks. Again, these are very highly correlated assets these days. Shouldn't be, uh, unfortunately, but they are way it's been here for the last year and a half or so, which has made it very difficult for investors, right? Because again, you've had really had no safe place to hide regardless of what was going on. It's like, well, you know, just find me something that's going up in price. Well, it really hasn't been. Small cap, mid cap are going down, large caps going down. Um, you know, bonds are going down. So it just really, there's been, gold hasn't done anything. It's just gone sideways. So, you know, there's, there's not been really a good safe place to hide. Uh, in asset classes. And, and that's, you know, just kind of a function of the market that we've been in as of late. Not much you can do about it, just the way it is. Um, but, you know, that seems to, you know, have 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 been a, a situation really ever since the Fed started into QT and, you know, hiking interest rates. And it's just it's just the byproduct of monetary policy changes, et cetera. It'll end. And, and again, we'll go back to a non-correlated you know, world at some point. It'll just be a function of time till we get there. Um, but this past week, you know, again, stocks rallied, bonds rallied. And this was all in the back of the Federal Reserve, mostly. Um, and then, of course, weaker economic data on Friday helped really kind of give that boost. And again, a lot of this was short covering. There's such a huge short position out on stocks and bonds. Um, a lot of that short covering was seen in the market. I mean, you had a 6% advance in the market last week. A lot of that was short covering, right? Those shorts being covered. And, and again, there's not much of that short position in the stock stuff. Still a big short position in bonds. That really hasn't been reversed much. But while that's good, right? And we've talked about, you know, market was very negative, very oversold. Now, it's a, and such a dichotomy, right? Because back in June, we're talking about how overbought the market was. Everybody was super bullish. It was FOMO. Couldn't wait to get in to buy, you know, AI stocks. Remember that whole thing? 
And then in three months, everybody's negative on everything. And then now six days later, everybody's you know all optimistic again. So here we go. But that's the way markets work. It's all about psychology. But um, you know we had this very sharp rally. But here's the problem, and as we've talked about this before. So last week on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve says higher yields are doing the work for us, right? And so there's an equation. If you look out, and the recent run-up in yields this summer was added about three rate hikes to monetary policy tightening, and so that was helping slow economic demand and. Um, you know, hopefully bring down some inflation, kind of doing the work of the Fed for them. And then this is even a point that the Fed made and not just Jerome Powell last Wednesday, but that whole previous week, we had speakers coming out talking about how the recent run up in yields is doing the work for the Fed and, you know, alluding to this fact that the Fed doesn't need to hike rates right now because higher yields are doing their work for them. Well, you know, the problem, the problem, of course, is, is and, and, and this is what we talked about before, is, you know, financial stability, liquidity, those type of things. The reason that the Fed hikes rates in order to combat inflation is that higher rates slow down consumption, higher rates impact consumer sentiment, right? You know, rates cost, you know, everything costs more, and so I'm not happy that things cost more because I can't buy as much. I can't do the things I want. So I stop spending as much, right? So I have less demand in the economy. If I have less demand in the economy, then people that want to sell stuff, they have to discount their prices to sell it to me. And that brings down inflation because what is inflation? Inflation is just the change of prices relative to demand. So if you have a lot of demand and not a lot of supply, you get inflation, right? Because prices go up. I can charge more for my goods or services. If I have not enough demand and I have too much supply, well, the, re the way I get rid of that supply is what? I put things on sale, all right? And I sell stuff cheaper, and that brings down the cost of, of prices, right? That that's, brings down inflation. That's all it is. It's not complicated. It's not some you know myth of the world. It's just the difference in prices. So higher interest rates curtail spending, which reduces demand, which means that prices come down in order to get that supply sold. And this is something that even Ben Bernanke, we've talked about this on the show before, back in 2010, when uh, Ben Bernanke did quantitative easing, the second round of it in September of 2010, he said specifically, now, uh, I, I am, you know, basically just kind of regurgitating what he said. It's not an exact quote, but basically saying, that the reason they're doing QE is to boost consumer confidence by boosting asset prices. So in other words, they knew, the Fed knows that if they do QE, that injects liquidity in the financial system, that boosts asset prices. If I boost asset prices, well, consumers feel better about themselves because, well, they have more money in their bank account. Now their 401k plan went up, their stock account went up if they have one. Most people don't, but if they, if they do, it went up. <laughs> and so this is that made them feel better. So if they feel better, they go out and they spend more money, right? So consumer confidence is the key to all of this. How do consumers feel? Are they confident about the economy or are they not? If they feel confident about their job, they feel confident about their economy, they feel confident about the money they have in the bank, then they're going to spend more money. They're going to take trips. They're going to buy cars. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. That creates inflation. And that's okay because that's back in 2010, that's what the Fed wanted. We were coming out of the financial crisis. We needed inflation. 
market was really stuck in a deflationary spiral at that point. So they needed to get inflation going again. So that was why QE was, was effective in that regard by boosting asset prices. The problem for the Fed today is, is that they still don't want, at this moment, they're still trying to bring inflation down. We're about running about 3.7%, 3.9% on inflation. That is going to come down next year, regardless. That's just the math. But they're worried about that. And the problem now is, is that this sharp run in asset prices, this sharp run in, in bond prices, which is bringing yields down, is starting to work against the Fed, right? It's loosening financial conditions. Now, again, just one week doesn't make that big of a difference, okay? But if this continues, if asset prices keep running back to all-time highs, if bond yields keep falling at some point, then that is going to start to run con you know, contradictory to what the Fed wants. And this may put the Fed back on to a situation of being more hawkish about their outlook, right? So we're not out of the woods of this back and forth between the Fed and the markets yet, right? So we just saw some weaker economic data. Now, if the data continues to weaken, now here's the other side of this coin. Let's assume for a moment that Friday's employment report was the first domino to fall. And finally, this recession that we've been talking about for months and months and months and months and months is finally going to start to rear its ugly head. So everything I just said a second ago is specific to a non-recession scenario. So if yields keep falling and asset prices keep going up, the Fed's going to be in a tough spot with inflation if the economy is avoiding a recession, because that means supply comes back, demand increases faster, and prices go up, right? So that's going to be the problem for the Fed. However, if Friday's employment report was the first domino to fall in a potential recessionary environment, then it's a different situation. Asset prices are going to have trouble going higher because of slower economic growth, which is going to be problematic for earnings growth, right? So all those earnings estimates are going to have to come down. Bond yields are going to fall as money moves into safety, but that's going to be okay because the Federal Reserve is going to be trying to figure out how to bring down inflation interest rates in order to support economic growth as the economy is moving into recession. So here's my point about it. Very confusing, I know. But this is the, this is the trap that the Fed has gotten themselves into, and it's not something that is going to be easy for them to, to navigate themselves out of. Because again, was Friday an anomaly in that employment report? We don't know. And we won't know until we get four or five more behind us. If Friday's employment report was weak, but then in December we have, or sorry, in November we have 300,000 jobs, and then in December we have 400,000 jobs. And January is always a big, a big year because big month because we have a bunch of seasonal adjustments. Then, you know, that's going to be more inflationary, right? So the Fed's going to have to be focused back on inflation. However, if we start seeing a trend of weaker employment reports, the Fed can't hike rates anymore. They're going to have to start worrying about easing, taking the pressure off the economy if employment consistently comes in weak and the threat of recession starts to rear its head, the Fed is going to have to be more concerned about that than not. It's very interesting. Um, over the weekend, 
I saw a couple of articles on the website or on, on, on the web about Citizens Bank. And apparently, I can get my computer work. I'm just let me pull up the actual article here real quick. Internet's running really slow today for some reason. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so over the weekend, I saw, I can't find any confirmation of this. And normally, like in, our, you know, kind of the, the main, you know, kind of financial, like CNBC, for instance, it should be all over the front page and it's not. But apparently, Citizens Bank failed. Um, and again, there's, you know, a situation here that you know we've talked about before is that you know we had those bank failures back in March and of course the Fed came in and did the bank term funding program to bail out those those banks well apparently Citizens Bank has also and again I don't quote me on this because I can't find any confirmation I saw some headlines and and I've got some articles in like the Des Moines Register and some others that say um, you know Citizens Bank has failed but you know, we'll see. But, you know, one of the issues is, is that we're not out of this regional bank crisis yet, right? We kind of papered over it, and higher interest rates are certainly causing a problem in that environment. So the battle for the, so back to our original point here, the Federal Reserve is in a really tough spot. Do you keep rates higher for longer and cause a, a recession? In order to bring down inflation? Or does at some point, does the Fed acquiesce and start to bail out the economy and the financial system despite what inflation is doing right anyway we'll come back talk about uh, this uh, recent death of fire we come back after the break don't go away The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hey, welcome back. So this morning, so yeah, sorry, I apologize for the slow internet this morning. I was able to find the FDIC notice over the uh, that came out over the weekend. A citizen Bank in Iowa. Uh, yeah, they failed, and uh, they were uh, all the assets were transferred to Iowa Trust and Savings. But the point is, is, and my point was, though, is that these higher interest rates, you know, are taking a toll on the economy and, and, and taking a toll on these banking systems. And again, the, the Federal Reserve is going to bail out the financial system if it gets bad enough. Now, look, small regional banks, you know, that have, you know, two or three branches and, you know, maybe 100 million or so in deposits, those aren't the big worry, right? It's it's when you get into the the PNCs of the world or the truest financials of the world. Those re, you know the regional banks that you know have a couple hundred you know billion under management. Those type of things. Um, those are the those are the systemic ones. And you know we talk about J.P. Morgan. We talk about Wells Fargo as too big to fail. Um, these you know big big regional banks are also systemically important. Right. And they can be shuttered and transferred like we saw, you know, J.P. Morgan acquiring assets of banks, you know, back in March. That can only go on for so long. And if it keeps spreading, these big banks won't be able to absorb all of those assets. And, and, and but it's going to be the you know, everything's going to be fine. Right. I mean, the deposits will be transferred to other banks and you're not going to lose your money. You're FDIC insured, et cetera. Just make sure you're within the limits. 
But my point, though, is, is that when that those dominoes kind of start to tumble, the Fed is going to have to give up their inflation fight and start bailing out the economy, right? So they're going to have to cut rates. And that's kind of what the market's starting to figure out now is that going, hey, look, you know, the Fed's done hiking rates, so the next step is going to be the Fed to cut rates. And the Fed will start cutting rates when the economy's into recession. So that's the point we want to get to. But that's the, that's the trap. As I said, that's the trap that the Fed's got themselves into. On one hand, they've got this inflation fight. On the other hand, they've got the financial system. You can't fight both fights simultaneously. One's going to win. And my bet is, is that given that lag effect, you're going to be fighting the economy and the financial system and have to forget about your fight on inflation, at least temporarily. So we'll see. Um, about three years ago, I guess, a little longer than that now, maybe four years ago, it's time flies when we're having fun, right? Um, there was this whole movement, and we wrote several articles about it and, and talked about it here on the show a good bit, talking about this financial independence retire early. It was the FIRE movement. And if you remember, um, you know, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff talked about this as well on uh, Financial Fitness Friday. But you know, the, the theory was is that there was all these kids um, that were running around and they were like retiring in their 30s and they'd have they'd save up you know 300 grand in the bank they go buy a van they live down by the river and just go travel around and you know uh, have their money invested in the markets as long as they were making eight percent a year they were they were fine they were fine right they could they could live in their van down by the river and have their money coming in from their passive investments and everything just was going up and it was no problem and then the pandemic set in. <laughs> and of course, all those assets uh, that they were invested in, a lot of cases, they had invested in Bitcoin because it was just going crazy. And they'd invested in, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of individual stocks that were going crazy at the time. They were making a ton of money. So, yeah, they could feel like they could they, they quit their jobs and they went to go retire in their 30s. And, and one of the problems that we said was going to be the case then is that here's the problem with retiring too early, is that you lose a skill set. The world passes you by, right? You've been out of the workforce for two, three, four, five years while you've been early retired. And now you want to come back and get a job because you've run out of money or things didn't work out the way you planned. And everybody goes, well, you haven't been working in five years, right? Why do I want to hire you when I've got you know, 60 other candidates over here that want a job, that have, you know, up-to-date skills and, you know, up-to-date talent. So we, so we said that was going to be a problem. The other problem was is just the, you know, the reality that markets don't generate 8% returns every year, right? They may, they may do it a couple of years in a row, but eventually you're going to hit a bad patch. And this is what we said back then. And, of course, we hit that bad patch. And it's been a tough couple of years for the fire people. And, and this was something we had said previously. We said the fire movement will end badly. It'll, the, the fire will become smoldering embers when something bad happens. It'll, it'll, it'll fade from the headlines, and it has. You, you can't, there's no recent headlines on the financial independence retire early movement. It is dead. It is dead, done, over, gone. <laughs> now, soft saving is in. It is the new movement for the Gen Z's. This is an article on CNBC this morning, and yes, I'm going to write an article on this <laughs> so I can bring up my old fire articles and we can compare and contrast. 
Gen Z is taking a more relaxed approach to their long-term financial security. According to a recent study, the so-called soft saving trend is about living in the moment with less emphasis on retiring early or even none at all. So, you know, bad news for Danny and Richard, who are financial planners that want to help people retire early. This younger generation doesn't care about financial planning. They just don't want to retire at all. This is what they're saying now. That will change as they get older. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> when it comes to savings, young adults should not discount the power of compound interest. That is a huge lie, by the way, and we've written an article on that one just recently. There is no compound interest in the financial markets. Anybody who says that does not know what they're talking about. Compound interest is one thing. Compound gains are another thing. Markets do not provide interest. They provide gains. Bond market provides interest. Bond market compounds interest because it pays you a set interest payment every year. You get that interest payment every year, and you have, if you own a bond, an individual bond, not a bond fund, if you have an individual bond, it matures at face value. That is compound interest. Compound gains is assuming the market goes up every 8% of every single year. That is not compound interest. That is compound gains, and markets don't do that. If the last two years haven't taught you anything, it should have taught you that. So, retiring early. This is the article. Here's the study. Younger American adults are, are taking a more relaxed approach to long-term financial security, and this is according to a recent prosperity index by Intuit. In the current client, newly minted adults between the ages of 18 and 25 are more interested in experiences that promote personal growth and emotional well-being. They are living in the moment, the report found, and they are less interested in retiring early or not at all. Now, look, they're very young, 18 to 25. I did a lot of stupid stuff when I was 18 to 25 years old. When they get into their 30s and 40s, retiring becomes a much more important part of your life <laughs> because you have now put in the time grinding out a job every day and going, you know, I want to get out of the rat race at some point. But the so-called soft saving trend is the soft life's answer to finances. This is according to the report. Younger adults feel discouraged by the current environment. And putting aside enough money to save for retirement is simply too difficult because it's eating into their ability to live in the moment. So as long as everything, so as long as markets were growing up at, you know, 10, 12, 15% a year, I could put some money aside and still go do the things I wanted to do and still buy the stuff I wanted to buy in the last couple of years. That hasn't been possible. All that free money that we got went away. And so now we're back down to the hard realities of life, inflation, the economy, those type of things. And it's simply trying to make ends meet. You know, I was talking to my wife over the weekend about this very thing because, again, just going out to eat is, we, you know, we talked about this on the show before, it's just very expensive. Um, you know, one of the things that we don't do, we don't go out a whole lot. Um, we mostly cook at home and because it's just her and I now for the most of you know, our kids are out. But they can't, but all of our kids came home. It was my son's birthday this weekend. So everybody came home uh, on Saturday, uh, actually on Friday, and, and we went out to um, our favorite Mexican restaurant and took the kids out. And the last time that my wife and I had gone out to eat, you know, somewhere nice, you know, tab was, you know, roughly about 100 bucks, something like that. So me and my wife, three kids going out. My fourth one lives in Germany, so he couldn't come over for the birthday. But, <laughs> you know, three kids, we go out to eat, tab's almost $300. You know, just, and my wife and I just looked at each other and was like, man, that's just crazy. 
how much, you know, how expensive it's just, it's made. I'm like, I don't know how people do this. Well, you know, then that's the problem that we're in currently in this environment. It's just the cost of everything has gone up so much. But, you know, for younger adults, the inflation factor is eating into the reality of, you know, I want to do these certain things now, my wants, right? I have my wants and my needs. I need to pay my bills, right? I need to pay my rent, need to pay my car note, need to pay my phone bill. And then there's some things I want to do. I want to travel. I want to have these experiences. I want to go hang out with my friends. And I can't do that and save money. So I'm just not going to save money. Now, you know, this is, this is a bad, you know, kind of a bad financial step at that age. We've talked about this before is that, you know, at that age, you should be saving. Now, I know it's difficult. I know it's hard to set aside those, you know, those wants in order to fund the need of savings, right? We should make savings a need that it has to be done because they do miss the ability, you know, you know, even though the market's in a tough spot right now, it's not going to be this way forever. And if you can buy the market cheaper now and start dollar cost averaging into the markets today, it will pay off. Markets don't compound, right? There's going to be years that markets don't make money. That's going to happen. We may go through a long stretch where markets don't make money. That's okay. If you've got 30 years ahead of you, you need to be saving and investing into just an S&P 500 index as fast and furious as you can. It'll pay off. But that's hard for people that are young to see that. But I do find it interesting that, you know, three or four years ago, five years ago, they're talking about this whole movement to, you know, be financially independent, retire early in your 30s, get out of the rat race. We said then that wouldn't end well. It didn't. And now the new one is like, well, screw it. I'm just not going to save for savings in retirement at all. <laughs> That's not going to work out well either. These are not good financial decisions on either end. All right, quick break. Come back. Talk about Warren Buffett. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, last week, um, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, reported earnings. Uh, total operating earnings totaled $10.76 billion last quarter, 40.6% higher than the number from the same quarter a period ago. Uh, same period a year ago. I'll say that right. Sorry. Uh, the interesting thing was is that they are holding a record level of cash at the end of September. $157 billion. Now, it tells you a couple of things. So, first of all, lots of commentary lately about the markets, right? AI and all this type of stuff. And the markets have had a decent correction in terms of valuations last year. They didn't come down much, but they did come down a bit. Warren Buffett is a not, look, let me just step back one second. You cannot invest like Warren Buffett. Okay, You don't have the ability to invest like Warren Buffett. You're a speculator. He's an investor. 
what's the difference? The difference is, is that when you buy a stock, when you buy a stock, hold on, my microphone is having a spasm here. When you buy a stock, you're just hoping the price is going to go up. You have no control over what the company does, how they spend their capital. What do they take out any loans? Do they uh, invest in stupid products or whatever? You don't have any control over that. You're just you're speculating, right? You're buying a stock price today, speculating, hoping that the price will go up in the future. You just hope you bought it at the right price. It's as pure a form of gambling as you know betting on a pair of twos in, in Vegas. You might win, right? Warren Buffett actually invests. And the difference is, is that, yeah, he buys stocks. But he buys enough stock that he can influence the board. And in a lot of cases, he buys the entire company. Like Geico Insurance. So he goes in and he sits down at the, at the board of directors table and says, okay, you know, what are we doing? And he has a voice, right? That's and and. So he has an influence on how that company operates, has control over how that company operates in a lot of cases. Not, not in the case of Apple. He owns a huge share of Apple, but he can pick up the phone and call Tim Cook. You can't. <laughs> Big difference. He also has no time limit. You do. Berkshire Hathaway will be here for 100 years. He won't be. Berkshire Hathaway will be here. So he can buy a stock today and say, I'm going to hold this for 100 years. You can't do that. Why? Because you need your money in retirement. So you're a speculator. He's an investor. Two very different things. But what does $157 billion in cash tell you? That there's not a lot of great opportunities out there. If there were, he'd be making acquisitions. With $157 billion, you can be buying a lot of stuff. He's not buying. You know, he could take that $157 billion and he could throw it into an S&P index. Right. He tells people all the time, it's like you, you can't you can't pick stocks. Charlie Munger said this, right, that why should you try to pick your own stocks? You, you know, you don't build your own electric cars or egg beaters. You just buy an index fund. That's the best you can do. Well, why isn't he doing that? Right. Why isn't he putting his hundred fifty seven billion dollars into an S&P index if there's no good opportunities out there to buy? Tells you something about the overall index. Lots of hate on bonds over the last year or so, right? Ah, bonds are terrible. They're only going down. They're never going up again. Inflation's going to the moon, blah, blah, blah. Don't want to own bonds. You know what, you know what uh, Warren Buffett has been doing with his $157 billion? Buying bonds. Buying treasury bonds. At a 5% yield, why wouldn't you? So the thing to, to take away from this is, look, Warren Buffett is a, you know, has, has a proven track record of, you know, managing his company well, building a, a massive conglomerate of companies and has built a, a giant, right? There's no argument of that. But watch what he does with his cash, because that tells you a lot about what his views are on things, right? A lot of concern here over the last, you know, I, I, you know, we've written articles about this and we've talked about it on the radio shows and a lot of bad rhetoric out there about, oh, the reason that yields are going up is because nobody wants to buy our debt. 
right? So yields are just going to keep going up because nobody wants our debt because of the deficit. And we, we've debunked all those claims. But if you don't believe us, you know, Warren Buffett's buying treasuries. If he was worried about the solvency of the United States, you think he'd be buying treasuries with this $157 billion in cash? So just, again, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you can pin on Warren Buffett, you know? He's, he said some stuff in the past I don't agree with, and that's okay, right? Nobody's, nobody's going to agree with everything everybody says. But I think when it comes down, regardless of what his views are or, or his political leanings, whatever it is, that's irrelevant. Watch what he does with his cash. If valuations were good in the markets, if there were opportunities to buy stocks in the market at this juncture in time, wouldn't he be doing that? Wouldn't he be taking that record $157 billion in cash and putting it to work versus buying bonds, right? If bonds were terrible and stocks were great, wouldn't he be selling his bonds to buy stocks? So again, regardless of what he says, kind of pay attention to what he does. Buyback activity continues to slow down as Berkshire shares have worn to a record high in the quarter. Firm spent about $1.1 billion to repurchase shares, bringing the nine-month total to about $7 billion. Um, so again, it's just something to think about. I did like this, uh, you know, he, he did kind of hit on some of the risk. While Berkshire scored a sizable increase in operating earnings, the conglomerate did acknowledge the negative economic impact from the pandemic, as well as geopolitical risk and inflation pressures. To varying degrees, this will quote, our operating businesses have been impacted by government private sector actions to mitigate the adverse economic effects of COVID-19 virus and its variants, as well as the deployment of geopolitical conflicts, sorry, deployment, development of geopolitical conflicts, supply chain disruptions, and government actions to slow inflation. That's higher interest rates. The economic effects from these events over the longer terms cannot be reasonably estimated at times. That's right. We don't know. And again, as we talked about earlier, you know, the lag effect of those higher rates have yet to be felt in full. Now, they're being felt some, no doubt about that. The extraction of monetary liquidity, all of these spending bills, et cetera, that are in the system now, they're going to continue to have an impact on the economy. Like the, the, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, that's going to still provide monetary support to the economy over the next three, four, five years, right? But it's a much smaller amount over time. So that even that boost that you're going to get from that in terms of economic activity is, is going to be outweighed potentially by the impact of higher rates on the economy. So again, it's just, you know, the the all of that support had to work its way. You know, we we wrote the 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 article talking about the, you know, the pig and the python. All that financial monetary support is still working its way through the python, but we're getting towards the tail end of that. And that support is going to wane more and more over time. And the impact of these, of these interest rate hikes, those are, those are just now entering into the system, right? So those are going to have a much more pronounced effect over time as the monetary policy wanes. And so, again, this is, this is, this is the, the challenge that we're going to face going into next year, and particularly with where we are in terms of of a lot of the other economic variables. And again, we've talked about, you know, the you know, inverted yield curves and we've talked about the leading economic indexes. Uh, the the uh, ISM services index that came out last week, much weaker than expected. 
um, you know, still still in expansion territory, mind you, but weaker. It's not improving. So again, you know, we're still not out of the woods just yet. So this is why we have to remain a bit cautious here. Again, markets were deeply oversold. Still expect a rally into year end. It's going to be choppy. Not going to go straight there. Not going to go back to all time highs. You know, um, you know, we get a bit of a pullback here over the next you know few days. Then another rally. Then potentially a pullback in the first couple of weeks of December as mutual funds make their distribution. We get the year end rally, and then once we get into January, I have no idea. You know, we kind of have a game plan of what the markets should do. And that's just from, you know, historic kind of historic trends over the next two months. We kind of know what that should look like. That doesn't mean it has to happen either. You know, seasonal trends and, and historic outcomes, those are possibilities and probabilities. And, you know, the statistics have, you know, they lean towards the probability side of a, a probability side of a continued rally here over the next couple of months. But it's always possible it doesn't happen, right? Anything can happen. We get we get a bunch more weak economic data. Markets start questioning earnings going forward. So get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, make sure that you uh, get our latest newsletter. Make sure you're subscribed there. And, uh, of course, get our uh, daily market commentary. That's out every morning. Subscribe to that. We'll get that to you by 730 in the morning. Get you set up for your trading day. It's all at the website. Best of all, it's all free. Millinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow.